Well, it's good to see you. Hope your day was wonderful today. Was it good? All right. Praise the Lord. I'd like you to open your Bibles up to John chapter uh, 5. And I want you to mark, if you would, a couple of passages that I kind of want to, in, in uh, passing reference tonight, which are going to be fairly significant for us. One is going to be Ephesians chapter 1. want to look at uh, something there, concept presented there. It's really helpful in, in our study. And also, if you wouldn't mind, uh, Mark, I know you're running out of fingers, Matthew chapter 4. Wanna want to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus is in the wilderness and the temptation that he is undergoing. Uh, the passage I want to look at tonight with you, though, it's exciting, it's brand new for us, and uh, been kind of uh, resting in it, it's been kind of difficult. I've had to shake loose, uh, really, some of the sermons that I've, I've uh, heard on this passage, and I wanted to come to it afresh and anew, and of course I've utilized some of my close friends in studying this, and so it's been exciting. And so uh, I want to share it with you, it's John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, it's a long passage. There's a lot that's going on in this passage. But in our study of this passage, it's kind of difficult to break, a, uh, I guess, break apart uh, one particular area of the study and study it independent from the other ones because they're all interwoven together. And, of course, there are several parts of this story that uh, need to be looked at. Uh, I want to read it for you this evening. It's John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. And, uh, again, I'm reading out of the NIV. I want to share that with you. And we're going to ask the Lord to help us. And uh, the truth here is powerful. It's uh, life-changing. It's been stretching for me. And uh, I trust that God's going to use it tonight. So I want to share it with you. John 5, verses 1 through 15. This is how it reads. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five colored uh, colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who had been there, or one who was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and then learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed, get this, interesting part of the story. The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple scene, or at the temple, and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Father, what a strange story. A lot of things intrigue me. A lot of things I find surprising. Uh, never want to offer criticism to the author of the universe. Not even constructive. My mind tends to wonder, 
What an opportunity of ministry was missed here. Why not? Why not did I find a conversation here? Why, why not a self-revelation like we did in the past passages? What are you trying to teach us in this passage, Lord? What's the focal point here? Pray, Father, that you would not let us get distracted with maybe certain ideas or concepts that are presented, but let us come back, back to the truth of your word. And in discovering the truth of this passage, Father, our lives might be changed. We love you and praise you. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Really struggle with this passage? Really struggle with this passage. Because there's a lot of things that I, uh, it, it's tempting uh, to really delve into, to uh, kind of investigate and, and uh, seek out answers to. And there's certain things in a passage maybe we might gravitate to. We looked at this uh, the other night when we looked at the story of the wedding at Cana. It seems like um, maybe sometimes John raises issues that he doesn't handle. Uh, he doesn't, uh, he raises, he uses, um, uh, I guess you might say, props in a story. And he really doesn't want you to get sidetracked with the props. He's trying to tell you something in the story. Uh, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, if you ran after the concept of wine or the idea of wine and, and uh, you walked away from that story, really trying to figure out the whole deal with the wine, you might in essence miss what the whole passage was about. So one of the things that I've been trying to do in this passage is come back to what's going on here. What's central here? What, what questions does he not try to answer? What, what does he seem to pull away from in the passage? And there's a number of things that you can get distracted with in this passage. For instance, uh, the healing itself. Jesus walks up. In the middle of this passage, this man is healed. It's a phenomenal mystery. It's uh, how this took place. And, and wow, isn't that great and wonderful? And this, this guy was healed from a condition. He'd been that way for 38 years. But I find it interesting that in the midst of this healing, uh, it's not like a normal healing. There was no... There's no ministry found here, which is really strange. See, he walks up to this man. He doesn't mention who he is. He doesn't walk up and say, hey, by the way, I'm Jesus. Maybe you heard of me, uh, Messiah. I want to heal you. And then wham, healed this fella. See, there's no, uh, there was no PR, <laughs> no, no public relations on this healing. Uh, there, was, there was not even a gospel presentation, you know. Scratch my head and think, what in the world's going on in this passage? See, he doesn't heal him and then say, now, sit down, let me tell you a parable. See, there's none of that. He heals the guy, slips into the crowd. In fact, someone says, hey, who did this? And he's like, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> but I'm healed. Carrying his mat on the Sabbath. He's busted on that deal. I found that really interesting. See, all that kind of stuff is missing. All the things that you would normally see surrounding a miracle, well, they're not there. So what in the world's taking place? See, what's the focal point of this passage? Well, I want to help you with that. There's kind of a concept that's been brewing uh, in the Gospel of John. And uh, it's kind of really been coming, uh, it, obviously it's been here all along, but it's really been kind of coming to a point over the last few uh, stories. Uh, at the very end of the Samaritan ministry, uh, some of the words, and again, uh, because of our translations, certainly because of our society, man, I want to share this with you. Because of the, the shallowness of our society, we miss this concept all too much. And I want to be honest with you, I'm still struggling with application in my life with this, with this whole passage. And, uh, and how does it change me? To be honest with you, it's foreign in my life. It's foreign. The idea is foreign. It's almost difficult to apply. See, it wouldn't have been in their day. Uh, certain words are going to stick out. For instance, look with me at, uh, back at one chapter, a couple of the stories here. It's the passage we looked at the other night, verses 39 through 42. It's the recap of the Samaritan ministry. Uh, let's, let's focus in there on verse uh, 40. It says, So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. 
And because of his words, many more became believers. In other words, the direct result of salvation of those who were in this town, uh, the direct result of belief that was taking place in their life, was, it was a product of the words that he was speaking. And you understand the concept of his words that he's speaking is heavy. It's big. It's huge for them. Uh, you go on and you begin to see this take place elsewhere. For instance, uh, you look at verse 50 when the man uh, says uh, to the royal official, you may go, your son lives. It says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. It's literally the word he spoke, you understand. There's authority in Jesus. This guy recognizes that. The word that Jesus spoke, he took that word as truth, walked away on that deal. Uh, And of course, so we see this idea of clinging to the word. Again, in our passage, Jesus walks in the middle of this situation. You got a man who was, uh, a man who's been uh, paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus speaks three imperatives. The original language is what they are, they're commands. He says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And it takes place because of the speaking of his word. So it literally seems, it really seems there's been this building process and it really gets stronger as the, uh, as the gospel moves along. But there's this emphasis on the speaking of Jesus. There's an emphasis on the speaking of God. Which in our culture, that, that really doesn't make sense. You know how shallow our culture is? Well, let me tell you how shallow our culture is. Uh... You don't have to go to the supermarket to find this. You don't, which it's, it's always at the supermarket. You don't have to turn on your television to see this. Um, you don't even have to hang around certain age groups to see this. We don't take much responsibility for the language that we use, the words that we use. Um, I give a lot of illustrations about me being in churches because I'm always in church all the time. But uh, it's a true story. And uh, I was in a church not long ago, and uh, I'm watching a little kid, couldn't have been three, and uh, he's out in, the, out in the parking lot. The parking lot in the churches is a world of its own, okay? And uh, I'm on my way uh, out, the service is over, and I see this kid, and obviously something to do with he wanted to play with someone or something. And this little kid is screaming and crying, hitting his mother, saying, I hate you, <laughs> you know? And she's like, yeah, 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 get in the car. <laughs> There's this argument that's taking place. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, how bad am I going to beat my kid when he says that to me? You know, There's not enough timeouts in the world for that kind of thing. You know, how do you, how do you handle that? And take beating in the right context, you know. But there will be a meeting of the stick with the behind in that kind of a setting. But see, how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, and that, is that kid understand what he's saying with that kind of deal? Not to mention he probably gets home and, and doesn't even say I'm sorry. And there's this made up type of thing that takes place. And they, there's this forgiveness and this happiness. And there's a tucking into bed. And see, there's no responsibility for that. See, that was not the case for the first century Jew. That was not the case. See, words were huge to them. And we're going to look at this later on in the passage. And I'll give you kind of a preview but see, the concept for the Jew is that when you spoke about something, literally that word went out to accomplish what you spoke. The idea was the word kind of hung around. Uh, in the Jewish culture, see, if you curse someone, you can be put to death for that kind of thing. Why? Because the word that you spoke, especially based on the authority that you had as a person, the word that you spoke literally went out to accomplish. And see, we get this, you understand. We were made for this kind of thing. We, we were created to be this way. You see, this is how God relates to us. This is how God is, is, is intertwined with our lives. This is how God relates to created beings, to created things. How did God create the world? He spoke and it took place. 
How does God relate to us? I want to share with you in Ephesians, just really briefly. A good buddy of mine has recently done a passage in this study. And, of course, he's a phenomenal fellow. Helps us very much in our insight of the Word. But I want to share this with you. It's in chapter 1, verse 3. And the whole section on Ephesians, been doing a little bit of study here, nothing really too in-depth, but everything's in Christ. All of this is made available in Christ. And so what I'm about to tell you is made available to us. It's a, it's, it's a part of us. It's the big deal for us, but it's found in Christ. Listen to what he says here. Verse 3. Praise be to God, to uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms... I'm sorry. Yeah, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Let me read that again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing. When he says who has blessed us, that word is actually a compound word in the original language. It's made up of two words. It's made up of logos. It's made up of the word speaking and good. So the idea of the blessings of God is literally found in how God relates to us, how God intersects our life, is literally that when we're found in Christ, God is speaking good things about us. Uh, again, on hearing this preached by another evangelist friend of mine and kind of bouncing around the scriptures myself, I really tried to find out places where God does not speak good things about us. You know, I can't find that. I can't find out where God starts to dog us. Word for my generation. Um, where God starts to rip us down. Where God starts to say stuff like, Oh, I'm so disappointed with this guy, you loser. <laughs> you ever feel that way? See, I can't find the scriptures where that comes from him. See, the idea in Christ is that God is constantly speaking good things from us, uh, good things about us, and we receive those as blessings in our life. The idea is that God speaks and things come to pass in our life, and they're good things that come to pass. Wow, isn't that powerful? God is always speaking good things about you, which makes sense. How does the enemy fight against you? What is he known to in the old? What is he known as in the Old Testament? What's his title? Starts with an A, ends with a accuser. Accuser. That's right. He's the accuser. He's the one that says bad things about us. He's the one that points his finger at us. He's the one that tears us down. See, that is not God's position. That's phenomenal, folks. See, that's the style of the old covenant blessing. When Abraham lays his hand on somebody and he speaks the blessing and it takes place in their life. That's phenomenal. See, that's the way we were created. There's this relationship between God and man and it really pivots on this idea of speaking. Are you with me tonight? That's good truth. It really seems to be what's going on in this passage. It really seems to be what's going on in the book of John. Because when you begin to look at uh, the book of John as a whole, the identity of Jesus seems to rest on this, you understand. The identity of Jesus, for instance, in the very beginning of John, uh, is given to him in the words of uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is the Word, became... See, that was his identity. See, that's how you could recognize Jesus. He was the speaking of God on display. You want to know who Jesus was? He was the event by which God spoke. And again, love this illustration... Uh, point in time, God speaks the fullness of himself. That thing floats, that word literally travels. And of course, we've, we've heard about this in the Old Testament. The word that God speaks, it goes out to accomplish what he has set it out to accomplish. That word goes down to earth. It takes on flesh, tramples around the country for a few years. That's Jesus. He's the word took on flesh. He's, this, he's the event of the speaking of God. See, this is how God is related to us. Now, why, I'm, why this is kind of an, introdu an introduction to this passage because... See, this is so important here that especially coming into a passage or coming into the Word, 
sometimes we'll grab a hold of um, issues, uh, we'll, we'll grab a hold of events, concepts, we'll grab a hold of certain words and phrases in a passage in which we're familiar with because of our own society. Uh, we might gravitate into this story, we might gravitate to the whole deal of the healing. See, it's really big in our society. That's something that's really, really exciting for us. And we tend to kind of bend the passage around that idea. But what I'm, one of the things I'm having trouble with is really healing is not, is not the main theme of this passage. The main theme of this passage, the big deal of this passage, is centers on the speaking of God. I want to share that with you briefly. I kind of want to do a quick overlay or just kind of review really quick and give you the focal point of this passage, kind of divide it up. I, I divide up the passages when I study them, asking the question, what do I see and what's going on here? Divided it up, verses 1 through 5 is kind of the uh, uh, introduction to the whole setting. Gives us some uh, in- information about the passage. Uh, Jesus says sometime later, <clears throat> sometime later, he's been up in Galilee, we understand, as the story's been moving along. He's passed through Samaria. He's had a wonderful ministry, ministry there for a couple of days. He's been in Samaria. Uh, then he leaves and goes up to uh, Galilee where he's been. And, of course, there's some, uh, uh, some ministry that is taking place there. Seems to just kind of follow Jesus wherever he goes. Kind of find that interesting. would like that to be so in my life. Uh, sometime later, it tells us, uh, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem because it's the Feast of the Jews. A couple different feasts, three, I think, that you had to be at. Every Jewish male, you had to show up to one of these feasts if you live within a certain vicinity. Jesus is showing up to the feast. And, of course, he gets there. And now it gives you some details about the temple, which if you go back in the book of uh, Nehemiah, certainly Ezra, you look at the construction of the temple, the reconstruction and the rebuilding, and after it was destroyed by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you're going to find out the details of, of, all this, of all the different gates the temple had. There's several of them. We're talking specifically about the area of the Sheep Gate. And, uh, of course, it, it tells us about it in verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So it's a really beautiful area. Probably smells like sheep. <laughs> okay, probably smells like sheep. Verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. Gives you some, uh, some ideas or some, some uh, kind of a definition of what he means by disabled, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Uh, one who had been there was an invalid and had been there for 38 years. Okay, 38 years. And the whole idea which Jesus is going to address here momentarily is the reason they're lying there is it's not a biblical tradition, but it's some tradition that has surfaced in their day that they lie here. And the, the tradition was is that at a point in time, periodically, an angel of the Lord would come down, he would descend, and he would move into the water. And you could tell that he's moving into the water because the waters would be stirred, whatever that means. Maybe kind of the hot tub effect, who knows. But he moves, into the, he moves into this little pool, and when the waters are stirred, hey, the first guy in's healed. Okay? That, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the tradition. This guy's had mega bad luck. You know, 38 years, he's on the short end of the stick. I'd work out a new strategy of getting in the pool. But see, he's been there for 38 years. Hasn't been working out too well for him. He's still paralyzed. He's still there. But he's counting on this tradition, you understand. Dedication. 38 years he's been there. Now, what happens is, is uh, in verse 6, well, it says verse uh, uh, 5, one who was there had been there an invalid with 38 years. Now, listen to verse 6. When Jesus him, uh, saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he approaches him and he asked him, do you want to get well? Moving into kind of my second part of my little outline here, this is the conversation that takes place. And that's really verses uh, 6 through 8. 
Jesus learns of this. He comes into the temple. Of course, he sees all these people there. Doesn't really tell us how he learned of this condition. Really kind of think it's interesting that he learned of this. Walks into the temple. It's like he didn't know about it. Sees this guy over there. Maybe asked the question. Maybe the question was brought to him. Who is this guy? Maybe someone just bringing up the conversation that this guy is still here. Can't believe he's still here. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a joke. A 38, this guy's been here for 38 years. Yep, still there today. And there's maybe a surfacing. All kinds of things that could have took place. But he walks in the temple, sees this guy over there. When Jesus learns of this, probably puts his hands in his cloak, <laughs> his pocket. He says, 38 years. This guy's been here for 38 years. Walks over to the guy and asks the most absurd question. Probably wouldn't have asked this. Do you want to get well? Why are you here? Which, again, Pastor and I have talked about this this week just in passing. That's a loaded question. See, what's going on here? Jesus walks up and pointedly and says, what do you want? See, why are you in the temple? And you understand what the temple is all about, don't you? See, the temple was the place where if you wanted to encounter God, this was the place. See, this is where he resides. See, in our day, where's God's home? Well, he lives in each and every one of us, and, and it, it's difficult. You can't just point him out. But see, in their day, where's God live? Yeah, you go down three blocks, take a right, he's on the left. See, that's where God lives. He lives in the temple. Yeah, the big white building over there. Gold on the top of it. See, that's where God lives. This guy is standing, in the, been there for 38 years, you understand. Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? And immediately, the guy begins to uh, offer up kind of an excuse, explaining the situation. Sir, the invalid replied. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. 38 years. It's been terrible. You want to stick around and help me? That's what he's saying here. Every time, every time I try to get in, someone gets ahead of me. And Jesus says this. Now listen, everything in this story begins to come to a point right here. At this point, you, you figure, hey, there's going to be revelation who he is. There's going to be this story. There's going to be a parable. There's going to be some type of attention. He's going, to, he's going to whistle and snap his fingers to his disciples and say, pay attention. I'm getting ready to do something really significant. See, there's none of that kind of stuff. He gives him three imperatives, not questions, not asking him to do things. He says three things, speaks three things. He says, stand up, take up your mat, or get up, take up your mat, and walk. And then the text says, which I think is really important here, it draws attention to this in verse 9, at once. Your translation might say immediately. Immediately, at once, this man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked in response to what Jesus has said. Immediately. The, whatever took place in this man, literally by the command of Jesus' voice, popped back in line. This man stood up and walked. Now, uh, that's the conversation. Now, you kind of look at the, uh, there's kind of a, a conspiracy <laughs> that's, that's begin to arise out of this. You have this phenomenal miracle takes place. This guy's been laying here for 38 years. Jesus intersects his life, gives him three commands, and the guy's healed. He stands up and walks. Of course, there's excitement about that. And, and from the text, especially from what the guy talks to the Pharisees about here, here in a moment, you get the idea that Jesus almost hides from the guy, if that makes sense. He's almost elusive here. He didn't kick back over there in the middle of the temple, cross his arms and laugh and wave and kind of smile and watch. See, he slips away into the crowd. He gets away from this issue. Really intriguing. It says at the end of verse uh, 8, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat uh, uh, pick, uh, the man who had uh, in verse 
11. But the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is it this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus has slipped away into the crowd that was there. And so what you have that's taken place in this passage is you have this phenomenal miracle. What an opportunity for Jesus to reveal who he, uh, reveal who he is. There's this, there's, this, uh, there's, this, there's this awesome opportunity, this event that is taking place in this man's life. And he's prime, you might say, for Jesus to step in there and say, hey, this is who I am. And it never seems to dawn, uh, it never seems to dawn on Jesus uh, that this is that opportunity. In fact, he walks away. All you have displayed here is the, is the speaking of Jesus that intersects this man's life, and then, of course, the story ends. And you look at the condition of the man, and he's healed, but doesn't talk anything else about the healing, and, of course, Jesus has, has exited. Does that bother you any? Make you kind of wonder what the whole big deal here is? Uh, of course, the, they get into this big dialogue uh, with the Pharisees. And then even in verse 14, it says, Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. See, the consequence of the speaking of God in this man's life, the consequence of the intervening, uh, intervening of Jesus in his, life, in his life, making him well, did not change this guy. Please hear this. It did not change this guy. In fact, as the story tells us, there's kind of a recap there, or kind of an extended story here. Jesus shows up later that week or sometime later in the temple, probably that week, shows up there later, sees the man and says, Hey, see, you're well. You got what you wanted. You got the big deal. You got what you were after. Stop sinning or something else is worse going to happen to you. And even worse, the man goes and sells Jesus out to the Pharisees. What was the man's testimony? What was the man's testimony after 38 years laying in the temple, waiting for God to move upon his life? Well, he's well. He's still living in sin, but he can walk. I guess he's happy about that. And, of course, he runs back to the Pharisees. In the middle of this scene, in the middle of this scene, when you can look at the Pharisees and tell them something, who knows what, somehow pointing to Jesus, the only, the only thing he can say is, hey, the man made me well, and I found out who he is today. His name's Jesus. So they begin to persecute Jesus. And the testimony of this man, and one of the things that I begin to realize, especially at the end of this study, is after looking at that passage and walking through it and even being a little bit confused, there seems to be kind of a similarity between this story and the one that just took place with the royal official. See, the royal official came to Jesus wanting his boy healed. Didn't want to be a believer, didn't want faith, didn't want anything like that. Hey, my son's sick, I want you to heal him. If you remember us looking at that passage earlier this week, that's what he wanted and, of course, God intersects in his life. Jesus speaks the word all the way across the whole country, and the boy's healed. But the point is, uh, at, at, when this man learns of this, he realizes the exact time which Jesus had spoken, and not only he, but his entire family believes. His belief was not resting on, wow, now he can heal all kinds of people. Every time I get sick, I can seek this guy out. The guy became a believer. He came to trust. He came to faith in the speaking of God in his life. That something supernatural was taking place. That God had intervened. God had confronted this boy. The man who was sick never came to that point. And what you, what you understand, and this is really interesting to me, when you, by the time you come to the end of this passage, are you with me on this? By the time you come to the end of this passage, see, healing is not the big deal here. See, if healing was the big deal here, this man would have been saved. If healing was the big deal here, wow, he'd have been a believer. He'd have been following. God would have intersected his life. He would have believed. It would have been... But see, this man came to be healed. He was healed and there was no transformation in his life. 
See, he was healed and there was no, see, there's nothing else. Jesus shows up later and says, hey, stop. Stop sinning. <laughs> you think being lame for 38 years is bad. Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. So obviously the big deal in this passage is not centered on healing. It's not centered on what God can do for me. Which, I, again, that's so foreign in our society. See the, and you see church signs on this. And not that it's bad, but you see, come to Jesus and you'll clean up your finances. See, come to Jesus and he'll fix your body. Come to Jesus and he'll fix your marriage. Yeah, your wife will start doing what she's told to do. And uh, come to Jesus and your car will automatically get fixed. And uh, you see, come to Jesus and... See, I don't find that here. In fact, what I'm finding in my own life is if, if you don't want trouble in your life, stay away from Jesus. Just stay away from him. See, the idea of Christianity seems to focus on the speaking and involvement of God in your life. That this man was embraced. This man was confronted. This man experienced the speaking. Get this now. This man embraced, experienced the event of God speaking in his life took place. And he missed it. He missed it, you understand. Went right over the top of his head. Did not even catch it. Just, you understand? And I want to just read this briefly. You don't have to turn here with me. Jesus criticized, and that's a strong word, but Jesus criticized the Pharisees on this. Because this was the whole deal, you understand? This is the whole deal about who Jesus was and who he was about. This was life for him. See, life for Jesus really got into this in the term of, I want to help you understand this and maybe even help us put this together. See, eternal life is the life that Jesus came to give. Eternal life is not the product of physical circumstances. See, real life in this passage is not found in the guy can, is healed and he can walk around. See, that's not the big deal. John is cutting through the slack here. He's cutting through the whole story here and saying, listen, if, if you're confused at this point that you come to God and he fixes all your problems, I want you to understand, which is really amazing because the passage before this is all about the boy getting healed, which makes us want to bring our relatives, which makes us want to bring our sick in. Hey, Jesus, heal. But you come into this passage and the big deal is not about healing. He's almost correcting, he's almost correcting a possible flaw in the last passage. Does that make sense? See, the big deal of what's going on in the Gospel of John, life is not found in terms of healings, in terms of fixing my problems, in terms of the physical events that happen in my life. And in the synoptics, Jesus is always cautioning his disciples on this. Eternal life, the quality of life that is found in Christ, is a spiritual event. It is a spiritual reality that takes place uh, despite my circumstances. Let me give you an example of this. A friend of ours, a uh, friend through my wife especially, is in prison for the next 60 years of his life. He's a little bit younger than I am. And one of the things that I just cannot get over is that he can experience as a Christian in Christ the same eternal life, the same quality of life that I can experience outside of prison. Let that sink in. Eternal life, the quality of life that is found in Christ that guy can experience in prison. He can have the same quality of life in Christ that I can have. There is no difference. He has it in prison where I have it outside of prison. Because the quality of life is not dependent upon my physical circumstances. It's dependent upon my relationship with Jesus Christ. See, that's huge, man. And I have had infirmities in my life where I've come and said, God, speak. God, take care of this issue. And he says stuff like, my grace is sufficient for you. 
that the quality of life that I have for you, the lifestyle that I want you to live, the magnitude of life that you have in your life is not dependent upon the physical circumstance. Which is huge, you understand. Which means the life you find in Christ may not mean that you're going to get rich quick. Which means you can boot the whole sermon on if you pay 10%, he's going to give you 100 back. There's problems there with that kind of stuff. You know, the investment in the sky type of preaching we hear once in a while. God will bless you. He wants to make you a millionaire. <laughs> yeah, okay. See, I don't find that kind of idea here. Does that make sense? Take that in the right light. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, the big deal of this passage is not centered on the attributes, the physical attributes of what Jesus can do for you. The, the whole passage centers on the speaking of God in your life. What if, what if God's number one uh, priority, number one avenue, number one passion he has is to be the event of his speaking in your life. What if that's where life was? What if the sustaining value of life was found in God's speaking? I told you to turn here, and I won't have you do that. You can just, I guess, hear it. Jesus has been in the wilderness, tempted. He's been there for 40 days, hasn't drank anything, hasn't ate anything. It's a rough haul. Enemy comes to him, says, man, dude, you're hungry. You're going to die. No food, no water. You weren't meant to live like that. Hey, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. What does Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on... (laughs) I live and I'm sustained by the speaking of God in my world. Isn't that phenomenal? Isn't that phenomenal? See, I'm not sustained by checks from the Church of the Nazarene. Praise God. See, I'm not sustained by a nice truck that I drive. I'm not sustained by... See, I'm sustained by the speaking of God in my world. I want to tell you how profound that is striking me in my day. That literally, literally, every, every, uh, every, every demonic force, see, every circumstance, every, every, uh, every uh, uh, opportunity in my life where the enemy has to, to thwart what's going on, to attack me, see, all of that comes under the submission of the speaking of God in my life. Wouldn't it be something if you went home tonight, you walked in your kid's room, who doesn't burn after Jesus, and you said, Jesus, speak here. Just speak here. Just, just speak your truth in the middle of this place. Just speak. Just speak your word and let it fall in this room. Let your breath, let your words literally take captive my house. Jesus, speak in the middle of this situation that I'm going through. Hey, speak in the middle of this temptation. Ephesians, we are blessed in the heavenly realms. What's the blessings about? Speaking good things. See, what if the big deal about Christianity? Wow, powerful passage. And man, I, I'm struggling with presenting that kind of thing. And it, you know, it gets better every time you preach it. That's the first time I've ever presented that. But see, the concept is so strong that what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to focus on, what he's trying to pull his, 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 uh, his followers, see, what he's trying to get across in our life, that the biggest, the biggest deal that what goes on in these kind of places, it's not the physical circumstance, it's the speaking of God. It's just not on me, the Jeremiah the evangelist. Are you with me? See, that's, that's not the big deal. The big deal is what's taking place is God is speaking in this place. I want to live there. I want to live there. I want him to subdue by his speaking in my life whatever he wants to subdue. 
See, in every, every argument that I have with my wife, and you have them too, with every frustration I have with my fifth wheel, you have them too. See, with whatever, whatever problems I have, with whatever situation I arise, the other morning I woke up and as soon as my feet hit the floor, man, I just felt oppressed. I ended up going out and I told Jeff, I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to Panera Bread. <laughs> Showed up at Panera Bread and too many people. I said, I don't need more people. So I just went to Barnes & Noble and I just sat down and said, Jesus, speak. Speak in the middle of this situation, man. Speak in the middle of my life. Subdue everything in my life that is not coming in line with you at this moment. I want to live in response to the speaking of you in my life and where you're leading. Is that going on in your life? Uh, where are your hopes? Where is your hunger? When you get into the Word, what's the motivation on that? Is it speak? One of the things I, I don't like hearing is coming to churches and hear me compared to the pastor. I hate that. First of all, it's embarrassing to me. And it also tells me that they're not bad, though people are talking about that kind of stuff. But there's a little bit of immaturity there. Because see, if he's in the Word and I'm in the Word, it's the same God speaking. And ultimately, you don't come to hear him. You don't come to hear me. You come to hear him. And if you come seeking, if you come seeking, God will speak, period. I don't care who's in the pulpit. They can be clueless in the pulpit. Most of the time, we are. But if you come seeking and you walk in these doors and say, speak, he speaks every single time. Every single time. Which is evident why there has been some ministers, some evangelists, some preachers in the world today who have been living lives that have not been of Jesus and yet people still get saved. How in the world has that taken place? It's his word. And Paul talks about, hey, the message of the gospel is preached, whether out of envy, whether out of spite, whatever, whatever. Would you let that be the defining factor of your life? Just speak, Jesus. Teens, are you hearing that? Just speak in my life. Just speak loud enough for me to hear and I'll respond. See, whatever situation, whatever, whatever attribute of my life's not coming into line, whatever circumstance I'm presently living in that I don't like, just speak. <laughs> just speak and bring me in line with your word. Father, we love you this evening.